following message was recorded at River City Church. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. and Happy New Year Church and indeed to everyone who will listen or watch this service. It is 2021 and here in Derry as across UK and Ireland we're back again in a physical lockdown situation but we have no less freedom in our spirits. See nothing can hinder or limit our thanksgiving to God except our believing and to take care of that we have been given the glorious heavenly gospel of God's grace, a message of such good news that no one who truly hears and understands this news can ever again live as if God has socially distanced himself from us because of our sin virus. That's because the gospel reveals him not as the one who stands back from our sin and death, but rather the one who boldly entered into our life and death, which is why the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, could declare to the Romans, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, those words were written by a man who was being beaten up and whipped and jailed and starved on a regular basis. Yet he writes that he is persuaded that God loves him. Now, what does he mean by persuaded? I want to speak about that this morning because I think that right now in our world and even in the church, there is a great need for people to be likewise persuaded that nothing can separate them from the love of God. You know, some people need to be persuaded that a virus cannot separate them from the love of God. But other people appear to need to be persuaded that a vaccine cannot separate them from the love of God. So how did Paul get so persuaded of the love of God that Acts 16 can describe him sitting in chains in a dungeon at the end of another day of being beaten and whipped and falsely accused? And there he is, so full of thanksgiving and praise that all the other prisoners are watching him and listening to him. Well, I'll let Paul tell you in his own words from 1 Timothy 1.12. He wrote this, I suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. How did Paul get persuaded? Listen to his words again. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. So if you're listening to this message this morning, as someone who's filled by fear, especially as you look at the world right now, then you have a need in your life to be persuaded as Paul was persuaded. And there's only one way that can happen. You too need to know God. And for that to happen, you need the Holy Spirit and the gospel. And the good news I have for you today is that you're going to encounter both this morning. Now, can I also say that this applies to you even if you're a churchgoer or someone who would describe themselves as a believer? You know, Paul said, I know whom I have believed, but many believers, we struggle with fear in our lives because we do not yet know him whom we have believed as he wants to be known. Do you know one of the greatest fears paralyzing many believers in the world right now 
is the fear of error, the fear of doing something wrong or believing something wrong that will cause God to turn away from them. This is the same God, by the way, who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The same one who wrote, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God. But multitudes of believers remain unpersuaded of that because they've never grown up into the mind of Christ, never grown up into the knowledge of their union with him, their sonship, the truth that their lives are hidden with Christ in God and that the Father can now no more separate himself from them than he can from his own Son. You know, it was knowing God that way by the revelation of the spirit of sonship that Paul and Silas and multitudes of other believers in the early church Wow, they give God the thanks while suffering every tragedy and indignity this world could throw at them because they were persuaded that nothing in this world could separate them from the love of God. And as for the fear of falling into error, just take the Apostle Peter's remedy for that. For he wrote, do not fall into error, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to be speaking this morning about growing in this revelation of who God is, how good he is, and the effect of that growth on the church and on the world. Guess what? People who are growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ fall less and less into error because they are growing persuaded that God is so good that nothing they can do can make him any better toward them. Now, the effect of that growing persuasion is to take an axe to the root of one of the greatest lies producing error in the church. That works of the flesh, what you do for God, determines your identity to Him. Hold on to your seatbelts, folks. God is not good to you because you are good. He is good to you because He is good. And to be persuaded of just how good He is, is to be set free from the self-centered religious life that can never please God. For he has always known what many of us are only just glimpsing for the first time. The self-life can only ever produce a selfish life. What I'm going to show you today is that many of us as believers have never grown out of our fears because we have never grown up into the knowledge of the nature of God, his goodness. Without that knowledge of him, our heart, our believing, has never grown to be so persuaded as to remain in thanksgiving even in the midst of great suffering. Now, this is a work of the Spirit in believers that still today, as it did in that jail in Philippi, causes prisoners of fear to stare in wonder. I would love to see the world stare at wonder, uh, in wonder at the church for all the right reasons for a change. So I want to show you this morning that many of us have not been able to receive the peace of God that is his gift to us, the mind of Christ, the persuaded mind, the mind made up and at rest. Because as the book of James tells us, a double-minded man struggles to receive from God. If you have struggled for years to be persuaded of the goodness of God, the most likely reason is that the gospel you've been sitting under has left you double-minded about God. Let me put that another way. If your heart, your believing, your knowledge of the goodness of God is not growing the most likely reason is that your thinking has never been rooted and grounded in Christ alone as your salvation, your new life, but rather Christ plus your life for him. Now, this may come as a shock to you, but you know, sometimes the only way a body can be revived is with a great shock. So here it is, the jolt of the gospel that will revive the church. Believer, you don't have a life for God. You only have a life in God. For that old I life died, and your life is now 
hidden with Christ and God. You know, Paul wrote, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. And if our hearts are not growing more persuaded year by year of the goodness of God, it is because we're not growing in the knowledge of him whom we have believed. Now, you might have your own ideas about why that is, but all I want to share with you at the start of another year is that it is my conviction that you and I only grow in the knowledge of God by being presented with Christ and his work for you, not you and your work for him. For one is a finished work and a mind made up, and the other is a never-ending work and a mind not made up. For as long as your mind is not made up about whether he's going to turn his back on you or not, your life will be filled with fear and all the works of the flesh, the self-effort that such fear produces. You know, for 2,000 years, it has been the gospel of God's grace, not the gospel of your performance, that has brought freedom to those living in the worst captivity there is, captivity to fear. You know, fears can surround our lives and hem us in better than any prison wall. Imagine growing up all your life in a prison cell where you never got to run as fast as you could, to run as far as you were born to, never even saw the great open spaces beyond the other side of that wall. That is precisely what it is like to grow up with your life controlled and curtailed by fears that you can't see past. Your life shrinks to live within the boundaries your fears set. No wonder Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. Now, the root meaning of that Hebrew word translated issues is the border, the outer limit. In other words, you and I cannot live beyond the borders of what we have believed. Let me say that in a different way. You know, you and I can make all the plans in the world for 2021 to go further, achieve more in life than we have up to this point. And to that end, we may work harder this year than ever before. We may even pray harder this year than ever before. But God's word is clear. No matter what we do or what we say this year or any other year, our experience of life can never go beyond the borders of what we have believed. I mean, you can plant an acorn in a pot. It will never grow into a mighty oak until its roots can break out of the confines of that pot. Many of us as believers have never grown up into the generosity and the creativity and the freedom from condemnation of the life of Christ because our thinking, our believing, has been trying to grow in an environment hemmed in by fears. Now, you can physically do more and pray more this year than ever before, but if you get to the end of this year and you're, by, you're believing you know, what the Bible calls your heart has not grown, then you may be sitting in a bigger house or driving a bigger car, but your life and truth is no bigger because your believing has not grown. The same fears that imprisoned you and controlled you and curtailed your life in your smaller house have just followed you to your bigger one. The Bible says that God has put eternity in the heart of man. What does that mean? It means God has not put a limit on what you and I can believe. Now that's worth saying again. God has not put a limit on what you and I can believe. That's because a limited ability to believe is never going to be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. God has not put a limit on what you and I can believe because his way of changing and transforming our lives has never been through what we do for him, but has always been through what we believe of him. No man can live God's huge, unlimited, generous life by doing more, because it is not your doing that defines the borders that fence in your life. It is your believing. 
And that's why in John 6, 28, when the people asked Jesus, what must we do to do the works God requires? His reply was, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's quite a sobering thought, isn't it? That you or I could spend the whole of 2021 attending numerous church meetings, prayer meetings, Zoom meetings these days. We can involve ourselves in social programs, charity work, and yet, in the Lord's eyes, still at the end of this year, have left undone the work of God. For if our believing hasn't changed this year, then our life hasn't grown. It's just got busier. Now, please hear me right. There is nothing wrong in themselves with all those meetings and works. For of course God can take what we do for him and bring good from it. But he didn't come that you and I would live a busier life or even a more productive life. He came that we would live his life. A life free from the borders of fear. For in such a life, love can grow. Generosity can grow. Creativity can grow. And best of all, our knowledge of him, our experience of his grace, his life can grow. Jesus did not come to set down limits on our living, our experience of life. He didn't say, I have come that they might have a small life, controlled by boundaries and limits, rules and regulations, walls and borders. And so I came to fill them full of fears, especially the fear of disappointing or upsetting me. He didn't say that. Rather, he said, it's a thief who comes to steal life. I came so they would have life and have it more abundantly. That's John 10.10. You see, God's way of keeping you from error and sin was never to erect fences, but to sink a well. Do you remember we looked at that truth last year, that there are two ways to keep sheep from straying. You can either put up fences and try and control them, or you can sink a well that produces such sweet-tasting, life-giving water that they never wander too far from that well. You know, it was man who said to God, I can do it. I can be just like you. Just give me the fences and I'll stay within them. I have the power in myself to restrain myself and be like God. Now that's what Adam thought, and that's what the children of Israel said in effect to Moses at Mount Sinai. They said, let him give us his commands and we will keep them. So God in his mercy gave us commands to keep because he wanted us to discover something that you or I cannot restrain ourselves. And sure enough, not one of us managed to restrain ourselves. We've all, like sheep, gone astray. That's because our hearts weren't made for restraint. They were made for an eternity of believing. God's answer to us going astray was not to give us stronger fences, but to give us the gift of his grace, his empowering life, his spirit. The gospel is not a new set of fences. It is a supply of life-giving water. And that water of life is the very grace of God, the knowledge of him, the spirit uh, that causes us to deny ungodliness. Do you know how the grace of God, the empowering of a spirit, causes us to deny ungodliness? By revealing to us who we are in the Father's eyes. You see, only he who knows who he is can deny a lie about himself. Only he who knows who he is can deny a lie about himself. You will never be able to deny the lie that you have to make yourself godly until you see Christ and him crucified as the godly life already given to you. Through Christ, you and I are called to a life called godly. And we live that life through faith. Through faith, not in a life separated from God, a life called I, but through faith in the life that put I to death and raised up a new life altogether, a life called together with Christ. 
You see, the faith to live that life comes by hearing the gospel, the message of Christ and him crucified. Because to hear the gospel of God's grace is to hear your true name, who you are in God's eyes. You see, the gospel is the power to raise you up out of a life walled in by fear and open your eyes to a life free from fear, the life of Christ. Well, that's just the introduction to the scripture this morning I wanted to share with you. Uh, as we look at this, this new year beginning, turn to Matthew 17. I'm going to read you the first uh, eight verses of Matthew 17 because this is a story of transfigurations, the story of the disciples becoming aware of Jesus from a totally different reality. It says this from verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as snow. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I, I love the fact that the Father always takes the opportunity to say how pleased he is with the Son. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, and they were terrified. And Jesus came to them, and he touched them. And he said, Get up, and do not be afraid. Oh, I love that. You know, this is a passage about the disciples catching a glimpse of Jesus as he truly is. And for a few moments, they see him from a different reality. They see him from heaven's reality. And my simple message to you this morning is that the gospel is the power of God, the touch of God, to raise the eyes, the vision of men and women, so that they too can see themselves from heaven's reality. And I think there is a great lifting up going on across the world right now, a lifting up of the vision of the body of Christ up from a fixation on the things of this earth, the things that can be shaken, like your life for God, your religious performance, and up onto the things that cannot be shaken, your life in God, your union with Christ. Oh, how much our Heavenly Father desires us this year to see ourselves from His reality. Revival is nothing less than the church awakening to the reality that the Father, Son, and Spirit see that we have not been deprived of, we have been dulled to the presence of God by a gospel that points us to the old I, the man of the earth, rather than to the new Adam, Christ, the man in God. You know, I spent Christmas with my four children, and they're not children anymore. The youngest just turned 21. And if you were to ask me what my heart's desire for them is, I could, of course, speak about my desire for their health and prosperity, which any good father wants for his children. But more and more, as I look at their lives, my greatest desire for them has become that they would know how special and amazing they each are, how loved they are by God, so that their lives become filled with a power that this year the Lord has brought me back to again and again, the power of thanksgiving. You know, to see our lives in 2021 the way God sees our lives, to see our lives from heaven's perspective, then we need to see as heaven sees. We need to see that Christ and him crucified was enough for you and I to remain in peace. And the Greek word is erene, at one with God, in every trouble that afflicts us in this life. Heaven is full of thanksgiving and only speaks the language of thanksgiving because they can see the enormity of what Christ has done and the magnificence of the life that is now ours in Christ. 
But by and large, still, the church, you and I, we still see with earthly eyes. And as we've seen in our studies over the last four months, earthly eyes can't see past the enormity of the need to see the enormity of the provision. For our thinking and so our vision has been conformed to the pattern of this world, self-effort. And such thinking never leads us into the transformation that heavenly thanksgiving brings about because that little leaven of religion, self-effort, running through our thinking and so our believing, it means that we can never truly give God all the glory for the blessings of life because for years the spirit of the world has taught us that we must make something of ourselves. We must make a name for ourselves. You see, the world says, try harder to do better in life and you can earn that name you've always wanted to be known by, successful. And when that spirit of the world, self-effort, gets into the church, then the church too says to men and women, try harder to do better, and you can earn that name you've always wanted to be known by, holy, <laughs> blessed of God. Only a child who doesn't know their father has to name themselves. No wonder Jesus, in speaking of the giving of the Holy Spirit, promised that he would not leave his disciples as orphans. Despite what you may have heard all your life in the earthly-minded church, the work of the Holy Spirit is not to help you make something of yourself by supplying you with a list of self-improvement tips. <laughs> I'll say that again. Despite what you may have heard all your life in the earthly-minded church, the work of the Holy Spirit is not to help you make something of yourself by supplying you with a list of self-improvement tips. His work is to impart to you and I the greatest and most precious gift of our lives, our name, our identity to God, our life in Christ. You see, to hear God call you by his name for you is to be empowered to follow him. His words are spirit and they are life. It's to be empowered to walk with him and in him. For his name spoken to you is the power to be whom he declares you to be. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God to you. Why spend a lifetime striving for a name before men when God already has a name for you, what 2 Timothy 1.9 calls a holy calling, not according to what you achieve in this life, but according to God's own purpose and grace given to us in Christ from before time began. <laughs> you know, to grow up as a Christian is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind out of the I life. I did this for God and I did that for God and instead begin to speak from the revelation the Holy Spirit is giving you of your sonship, your life in Christ. Then we too can start to confess the truth that Paul did in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, to the Colossians also, Paul spoke of this way of seeing is like setting your eyes, your vision into the heavenly realm to see what God sees. And what do you see? Well, according to the first four verses of Colossians 3, uh, to have your vision set in the heavenly position in Christ is to see that you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. You know, if, if we're really seeing that way, shouldn't our eyes be like as wide as saucers all the time in wonder? I mean, is that not how every father loves to see his children? Is that not why we've been given this gospel, that we would just be in wonder, in thanksgiving our whole lives? I mean, is that not why parents decorate their homes with lights at Christmas, to see the wonder on the faces of their children? 
There is a light that God has given into the hands of his people, a light that causes men and women to look in wonder. It is the light of the gospel. And if the gospel you're sitting under no longer causes your eyes to open wide like saucers, then it is not the wonderful gospel of God's grace, the gospel that points us to Jesus only. How do we end up with a gospel that no longer causes us to be filled with wonder and worship and thanksgiving, but instead one that seems to only give us a dim foretaste of the goodness of God. Here is a big clue from Hebrews 10 verse 1. The old system of Jewish laws give only a dim foretaste of the good things Christ would do for us. You see, in spiritual terms, you are what you eat. If the life of the modern church is more dim foretaste than glorious light, then we have to look to the gospel they're being fed on. Is it one that only sees Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, as Peter did at that time, on the same level as Jesus? If the gospel we're sitting under has only raised up a people who, far from shining with the joy of the Lord and causing the world to look and wonder, instead appear to be a dim reflection of the liberty and joy and generosity of the life of Christ, it is because the light of the gospel has been presented mixed in with the shadow of the law. Now, what can be done about that? Let's come back to our passage of Scripture in Matthew 17. See, here we read of disciples standing in awe of Moses and Elijah, while all the time they have been in the company of Jesus, the one through whom all things were made in heaven and on earth, including Moses and Elijah. And there's a beautiful phrase in this passage that I want to draw your attention to this morning at the start of this new year, because to me it is a beautiful summary of the power of the gospel to touch people in a way that lifts their eyes off themselves and onto Christ and so live from a higher reality, to live from the presence of God. Look at verse 7. It says there, But Jesus came along and he touched them and he said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. What a beautiful illustration of the power of the heavenly gospel, which is the touch of Jesus on a life to raise us up out of fear and lift our eyes, raise our vision to see not Christ and our life for him, but to see Christ alone as our life. And let me give you another jolt into revival. Believer, look up. Set your mind, you're believing on things above. See what all heaven can see. You don't have a life for God. You only have a life in God. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Look up and see Jesus only. See Christ alone as your life before the Father. It is only the gospel of Christ's finished work that can raise our vision to see our lives as the Father and all of heaven sees from the perspective of a finished work not a half-finished work that God is looking to us to finish. You are complete in him, believer. That's Colossians 2 verse 10. How much does our Heavenly Father desire us in this year too to see ourselves from his reality? Let me say it again. Revival is nothing less than the church awakening to the reality that the Father, Son, and Spirit see, that we have not been deprived of we have been dulled to, church, the presence of God by a gospel that points us to the old I, the man of the earth, rather than to the new Adam, Christ, the man in God. How this word needs the church to wake up right now to the reality, the truth that heaven sees. And I believe the church is awakening because Jesus is building his church and he is the one who promised you shall know that reality and that reality will set you free. 
What do I most want from my children? I want them to know how much they are loved, how precious they are to me, because to me, that is the reality of who they are. And I want them to live in that reality and from that reality, because I know to live from that reality will so fill them with thanksgiving that they'll be freed from the orphan spirit of this world that promises them a name called successful, but can only ever leave them living the purest life a man can live, a life called I. Is there not a sadder thing for a parent to witness than their child striving, sweating, breaking their heart to try and become someone valuable in this world because they are blind to their own infinite worth and value, blind to the reality that their father sees? You know, God forbid this year that you would find yourself on your deathbed surrounded by your loved ones. But if I can ask you for a moment to put yourself in that position and imagine you only had a few moments left to speak to them, um, uh, what would you say to them? If I told you that you had perhaps one sentence to each of your children, what would you say? I think every one of us instinctively knows what we'd say. We would take all of that one sentence to say how much we love them. But why? Why on earth would we use our last breath to tell them something that we must have told them a thousand times? Because in the deepest part of our being, we know that their greatest need is the same as ours, to know we are loved. Because to know that is to know who you are. You see, that knowledge of how much we are loved is life-giving because it gives us our true worth and value, our true name. And if we can receive that name, then we can live that life of being the one perfectly loved. It is the greatest need in the church today that a revelation sweeps the earth of the reality of the person and presence of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. That is revival. And this reviving of the church, this awakening of the body of Christ to the life they now have in Christ, the life of a perfectly loved son, that will cause the world to look up. For how is the reality of a loving father to be revealed to a world of orphans who have never known what the fatherhood of God is? Only the life of a perfectly loved son can reveal a perfectly loving father. Only the life of a perfectly loved son can reveal a perfectly loving father. Only the body of Christ, the church, growing up into the head, the mind of Christ and who they really are, perfectly loved, can cause the body of Christ to start to walk before this world as who they are, sons of God on the earth. And that's why the greatest revelation of the fatherhood of God is coming on the earth, not through better church programs or bigger churches or better music, but through the preaching of the gospel of God's grace, a gospel that does not point to our lives and say, try harder, but a gospel that points to Christ and him crucified and says, see further. Can you see your true name, your true worth and value to the Father? Can you see in Christ the revelation of the Father's name for you? Christ and him crucified is the Father calling you by name. He declares, you are the one I am dying to be with. Can you hear him call you by your true name, perfectly loved, the one I withhold no good thing from, even my very life? Look to the cross, see who you are. Can you see yet? Can you see that you are the one who is of infinite value to the Father? Can you see the way he loves you by giving you all he has? For if he did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not freely give us with him all things? That's Romans 8.32. You know, as long as you cannot see that clearly, who you are to the Father, who Christ revealed you to be, 
the one the Father so loved that he withheld no good thing from, then you will continue to try and grasp for life, for a name, an identity. And the Spirit cannot agree with such a lie that you are left without a name. And so you will have to live that striving for a name life by yourself. You will have to live as an I. Now, whether you're a man or a woman this morning, believer, you will live as what the Apostle Paul called a mere man, rather than living as a son of God. For as long as we remain dull of hearing and short of sight to the Spirit of God, we can only live as an I. Do you know the biggest reason why multitudes of us believers in the church still live as mere men? Why creation is still groaning for the manifestation of the sons of God, for the church to grow up out of the I and into the us, the life of the Spirit, the mind of Christ and who we really are? The reason? Because multitudes of believers continue to sit under a gospel for the eye, a gospel that tells you who you could be one day if you, rather than the gospel that tells you who you are today because he. Both use the same words and quote the same verses, but one points you to you and one points you to Christ. One speaks of what your life could be and one speaks of what your life is. For believer, your life is hidden with Christ and God. One will leave you waiting all your life for God to do something and one will open your eyes to the enormity of what God has already done. And that's why one can only hold out the promise of revival and one will cause revival. It is only in seeing who he declares us to be can our souls come into a rest and a thanksgiving that will empower us to live holier by accident than we ever managed through a lifetime of religious striving. For the holiest people on earth are always the most thankful. It is through the proclamation of the gospel of God's grace, the gospel that tells you who you are because he, not who you could be if you, that multitudes of disciples this year will feel the touch of the Lord and his voice saying, rise and have no fear. And when we lift up our eyes, we will see no one but Jesus only. Church, you don't have a life for God. You only have a life in God. Let the I life that was put to death at the cross, remain in the earth. And if you have been raised with Christ, then look up and see Jesus only as your life. It is only as we, the church, fix our eyes there that our lives begin to be transformed with a level of thanksgiving in all circumstances that makes us appear to this earth as men shining with a heavenly light in the midst of this earthly darkness. Now that will make the earth wonder. God bless you.